Good morning. It's great to worship with you today. I just want to uh, say how grateful I am to be a part of this community. Um, my name is Al, and I am the church plant resident here uh, at Missio. And a couple years ago, when my wife and I were kind of wrestling with this idea of uh, starting a new church uh, on our own, um, and I was like really, really scared about it, about everything around it. And one of the questions that came up in my mind was, what does the future of Christianity in America look like? What does the future of Christianity in America look like? Because depending on the answer, that might shape and influence the decision that my wife and I make <laughs> regarding whether or not we should start a church. If it's completely hopeless, you know, there's, it's utterly a lost cause, then we might not want to do it, right? So uh, I was researching this a, a little bit a, a couple years ago, and I came across this study that was done by the University of Notre Dame and University of North Carolina together. It was a national study of youth and religion, and it was this exhaustive study done by several professors and their aides at these two universities. They interviewed over 3,000 teenagers from a variety of backgrounds all across America, all across different socioeconomic classes, uh, in the United States. And these interviews had over 50 questions, and the teenagers were left completely anonymous to protect their privacy. And so if you want to know what the future of Christianity looks like, a good way to gauge that is by studying current teenagers and young people. And these, discover the, these discoveries were very interesting. Contrary to initial assumptions, most teenagers were actually not opposed to religion. And there are a few teenagers here, so they could call me out if this is inaccurate, which teenagers often do, call people out on their BS. Uh, in fact, most teenagers were actually very supportive of religion. 75% of United States teens consider themselves Christians, while only 40% consider it important enough to practice regularly. And only 8% were actually considered highly devoted which meant that they prayed regularly, they read the Bible regularly, and regularly attended church. And when I say regularly attended church, it's like once a month. Uh, what most teenagers understand as Christianity, however, is actually very different from traditional, orthodox, historical Christianity. What most teenagers understand as Christianity is actually a cheap imitation of the real thing. Many teenagers and students understand Christianity to be uh, very different from uh, what we've known for thousands of years. Sadly, Christianity is just another extracurricular activity for many students. It's not that different from soccer practice or SAT school. The Christianity that they believe uh, can actually be better described as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, this is a term that was coined by this study after all this research was done. In other words, uh, a more colloquial term for this is do good, feel good religion. Do good, feel good religion. This is what we're going to be looking at a little bit today. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 16? 
uh, in the Bibles next to you, it could be found on page 842. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, and then verses 13 through 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning today, it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Let's skip down to verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a closer look at this really polarizing passage, these polarizing words of Jesus Christ, one of condemnation and rebuke to the most esteemed religious leaders at the time, and another one of affirmation to his closest friends, and many of whom were considered the lowly of society at that time. Help us to get a clear vision of who you really are, not just historically, not just theologically, but personally, who you really are in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are continuing in this series, Who is the Real Jesus? Um, and I really love this theme of exploring who the real Jesus is because it could go as deep and as controversial as you want it to be um, or as uh, simple as we want it to be. And today we're looking at uh, the gospel according to Matthew. And Matthew was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And one of the reasons why there are four different gospels of Jesus Christ is because you are looking at who Jesus really is from four different people's perspective, okay? And Matthew, coming from uh, a Jewish background, he wrote his gospel primarily for the sake of convincing his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters that Jesus truly is the Messiah, which is why verse 16 is one of the most important verses in this whole gospel. Now, uh, we begin today's passage by looking at this encounter that Jesus had with some of the religious leaders at the time. These are two different groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
And a lot of times, people have this misconception of these two groups of people because in the Gospels, they're often seen together, and we kind of, kind of uh, group them as like one large group, but they're actually very different from each other. The Pharisees were uh, highly educated. They were uh, typically very wealthy, and they were very involved politically. And like most other Jews, they read the entire Tanakh as their scripture, which is uh, from, from Genesis to Malachi, okay? They, re they read the entire Old Testament. That was their entire scripture. The Sadducees, however, they were a little bit different, okay? They only considered the books that Moses wrote, the prophet Moses wrote, as holy scripture. So they only read the first five books of the Old Testament, which also meant that most of them didn't believe in an afterlife, because the, the first five books of the Bible don't really talk about heaven, right? And so their philosophy was very different, okay? Their, their, their way of thinking was very different. And actually, Pharisees and Sadducees, they actually disagreed on a lot of things, which is very interesting. But for some reason, the one thing that they could unite on is going against Jesus, is opposing Jesus, so oftentimes when you see Pharisees like asking Jesus questions, you would see the Sadducees looking at them and be like, hey, I want to be a part of that. And so they would join in. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let us, let's see this, all right? And a lot of other, other times, like the Sadducees would be the one initiating and then the Pharisees would join in, all right? And so uh, this is a very interesting dialogue that we have. And so from the very beginning of today's passage in verse one, the very first few words is very interesting. This, the fact that you see these two groups together and Matthew, as, uh, he wrote his gospel to convince his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. And so those who are hearing this account or reading this account would immediately be appealed by this interaction because they often don't see these two groups together. And yet they're coming together to ask Jesus for a sign. Now let's start with verse 1, okay? They come together to, add to, to Jesus and they tested him. The usage of Matthew's words is really uh, intentional, all right? They tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, this is ironic in a couple of ways, okay? One, besides the fact that the Pharisees and Sadducees are together, okay? It's also ironic because Jesus had just finished doing a whole bunch of miracles, all right? Uh, he exercised a demon from a man in Matthew chapter 12, he fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. He walked on water in Matthew 14. He healed a Canaanite woman's daughter. And he fed, uh, again, thousands of people with seven loaves and a few fish in Matthew 15. Did you know this miracle happened twice? Not a lot of people knew that. Okay. Uh, so surely, if these Pharisees and Sadducees were so interested in Jesus and they were following him and kind of like keeping track on him for part of his ministry, uh, they must have seen at least one of these dozens of miracles that he's performed. At the very least, if they didn't see it firsthand, uh, it, what, it must have been enough to hear multiple accounts of these miracles being performed. And so uh, Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle, and these religious came up to him, and they said, hey, Jesus, show us another one. Do another trick. Do it again. Now, it's also ironic because Jesus, <laughs> he seemed to perform these miracles so easily, so readily, right? Just like on the fly. And yet when these religious leaders came to him, 
And they said, show us a sign. Do, do one more trick. He said, no. He said, no. Now, this interaction, uh, it's almost identical to uh, what happened in Matthew 12, verses 38 and 39. Um, in, th in this case, in Matthew 12, it was only the Pharisees who came up to him, and they said, Rabbi, show us a sign. They almost asked the same thing, okay? Uh, they say, they come up to him, teacher, rabbi, show us a sign. And he responds, not just with a no, he says, you wicked and adulterous generation. He doesn't just say, no, not, not right now. He's, he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. These wealthy, educated, powerful religious leaders. He not only says no, he insults them. And he does the same thing again in today's passage. It might not seem like he was insulting them because maybe I should have read it with <laughs> more oomph. But he, he straight up insults them. The Pharisees and Sadducees, when they came to him this other time in Matthew 16, even though they were both this exclusive and powerful leading religious leaders, uh, they differed a lot uh, on a lot of views. However, Jesus was so radical in his approach and critical of this existing religion and being overly legalistic and uh, kind of dominant over other peoples, he was, they were able to unite on this one thing of opposing Jesus. And Jesus knew, Jesus knew right away what they were up to. He knew their intentions. He knew their motives. You see, when the poor and the needy asked Jesus for a miracle, they were asking out of desperation. They had no other options except Jesus. They had nowhere else to go to. And the usage of Matthew's words are very intentional. You see, the religious leaders were asking Jesus for a sign. Whereas the poor, the needy, the hungry, the outcasts, they were asking Jesus to heal them. The religious, the religious leaders were demanding that Jesus show them, prove to them a miracle. Whereas the needy, the poor, the hungry, the outcasts, they were simply asking Jesus, help us. There's a big difference here. There's a huge difference here. They might have been asking the same thing, but their motives were completely different. The poor and the needy and the outcasts were coming to Jesus out of sheer need, whereas the religious leaders were asking Jesus for a sign out of want or selfish desires. But you see, even if Jesus showed these religious leaders another sign, the surprising thing is they probably still wouldn't believe. They were already opposed to Jesus because Jesus publicly spoke out against them. He already called them a wicked and adulterous gender. He already insulted them, right? And so they were probably looking to trap Jesus or to embarrass him or like expose him somehow. 
Even if Jesus showed them a sign, they would not believe. Which is pretty remarkable if you think about it. All right, I'm going to ask you guys a, a pretty personal question, okay? If you don't want to answer, don't raise your hand, okay? Um, but by show of hands, <laughs> how many of you have ever asked Jesus for a sign? Not for help, a sign. I have, okay? Yes, yes. All right, thank you for your honesty. Great. Um, <laughs> now, how many of you have been disappointed because God didn't show you this sign. I have. All right. Now, look back at that, okay? Were you asking God for a sign? Or were you asking God to help you? To heal you? What was your motivation? I think a lot of times we confuse these two and we think they're the same thing, but they're not. I don't blame you for wanting to see these signs. You know, I've asked God for countless of signs in my lifetime. But I came to realize that seeing signs and wonders doesn't necessarily strengthen one's faith. Simply seeing signs and wonders doesn't necessarily strengthen one's faith. Now, that might sound almost uh, heretical <laughs> to some of you, but let me prove it to you, okay? Let me give you some examples. First, in Exodus... Remember all the signs and wonders that God performed in the book of Exodus? Like the fire from heaven, right? And like God splitting the Red Sea, right? Amazing, amazing. And yet, what did the Israelites end up doing? They made a statue out of gold and they worshiped this uh, calf that they made. After all those amazing <laughs> signs that they saw, it's ridiculous, right? Crazy, right? Uh, and then there's this story of, um, fast forward a little bit, uh, to the Gospel of Luke. There's a story of Jesus healing the ten lepers. Okay, there's a story where these ten people with leprosy came to Jesus, and they asked Jesus to heal them. And in this case, they were actually asking Jesus to heal them. And so he, he did, and uh, only one of them came back to him. Only one of them came back to him to thank him for what he had done. Now, those are some biblical examples, okay? Let me give you an example from my own personal life. Uh, when I first started to take my faith seriously or maybe explore this idea of, like, faith in Jesus Christ, uh, I was in eighth grade, all right? And the, the, the way I kind of came about that is the worship leader at the time at my old church, he was this amazing, gifted uh, musician, and uh, um, he was looking for people to join the praise team, and uh, he offered to teach any instrument that he knew how to play, and he knew how to play a lot, right? And uh, I really wanted to learn how to play drums because he was this, like, amazing drummer, and I really wanted a girlfriend. And so I thought <laughs> learning how to play drums was like, come on, dude, like, drummers are like chick magnets, right? <laughs> and so uh, I, I joined him. But the other thing about this guy is that he was very charismatic. He was really into, like, um, manifestation of spiritual gifts like praying in tongues, which is like praying in like this heavenly language or other language, and, uh, and healing. He was really into like physical healing, uh, and uh, I've actually seen him like heal people's legs and things like that, like 
And so I was like amazed by this, right? And so um, I first joined Praise Team because uh, I wanted to learn how to play drums. But then just kind of witnessing some of these things that he was doing, um, I really wanted to experience some of this. And so I prayed desperately for the gift of praying in tongues. I really wanted to pray in, for, uh, in, in this uh, spiritual language. And so I, I, I prayed desperately and desperately, but for some reason, God never answered my prayer. And because of this guy's like charisma and like um, Pentecostal spirit, like the worship team was like huge. And all these students were attracted to what was happening and what he was doing. And so uh, the praise team at, at that time ended up being like 20 people. It was like ridiculous, right? There were a couple Sundays where there were more people on the praise team. <laughs> they were on, uh, in, in the crowd. Uh, it, was, it was crazy. Um, and so uh, a, a lot of them were like, <laughs> okay, I don't want to sound like judgmental, but a lot of them were like acting weird. They, I don't know if they were really praying in tongues or like just saying gibberish. And like they would do like, like holy laughter where they would just kind of like laugh uncontrollably. And, um, and this kind of went on for like a year, okay? And I never received any of these kind of like uh, miraculous like signs. Um, eventually, he stepped down from being worship leader. And then when he stepped down, gradually the worship team dwindled. Not only that, a lot of those students who ended up joining the worship team stopped coming to church altogether. And I still are, am friends with some of them today. And a lot of them still don't t take their faith seriously or consider themselves Christian anymore. So they were actually more interested in the signs of God than God himself. They actually wanted the things of God, the fruits of God, more than God himself. And because of that, they were kind of objectifying him. They were turning God into this, like, magical genie of sorts to give them what they want. And I look back at that, and I'm so grateful that God didn't answer my prayer to be able to pray in tongues. I, you know, it's not that I don't believe in it. I, I do believe in it to a certain extent, but I'm so grateful that it's almost like God kind of protected me from that for some reason. And there's this like little, in verses uh, uh, two and three, um, Jesus doesn't immediately, when, when the Pharisees and Sadducees ask him uh, for another sign from heaven, uh, Jesus doesn't immediately respond by, by calling them a wicked and adulterous generation like he did in Matthew 12, okay? He talks about this weird thing about predicting the weather, <laughs> which seems kind of odd, okay? I don't know if anyone uh, picked up on that, but it's like, that's kind of random. Why is Jesus talking about how to predict the weather, right? Uh, and, and there's this like legendary form of predicting the weather. I don't know if you or maybe your parents do things like this at all, okay? But uh, my mom used to do this all the time. She would step outside, and then she, she, would, she would sense something. She's like, hmm, it's going to rain tomorrow. I'm like, how do you, there's not a cloud in the sky. How do you know this? She's like, I know. Or like, you know, like some, maybe the weather would just like get a little bit cold, and then she would go, oh, this is earthquake weather. I'm like, what? But the crazy thing is, she would be right sometimes, and it would, like, scare the crap out of me. Anyways, and so there was this, like, kind of legendary 
way of predicting the weather in the first century where they would look at the sky and they would like look at the color of uh, whatever and uh, they would know what the weather was gonna be like, right? And then people thought like, oh, these like religious leaders, they know everything. They're so experienced. They're so educated. They're so wise. Yet they could not recognize who Jesus was right in front of them. They know so many things. They're so educated. They're so experienced. They're so powerful. Yet they could not recognize that the Son of God was directly in front of them. And the ironic thing is, in verse 16, when Jesus asked his disciples who he is, it's this lonely fisherman who truly recognized the identity of Jesus Christ. And then he responds by calling them a wicked and adulterous generation in verse 4. Ouch. That seems a little harsh. Ouch, Jesus. Ow. <laughs> Dang. Oh, man. Why was Jesus using such extreme language, especially with regards to these esteemed religious leaders at the time? Now, let's look at these two words, okay? The first word, wicked, um, can come from a few words. Uh, this word is a derivative of the word hurtful. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees were, they didn't have the best intentions. When they were approaching Jesus, they wanted to hurt him. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to expose him. And they were wanting to use this against him. So if he actually succumbed to their request and he showed them a sign, they would probably use this in some sort of way against him, right? They were trying to trap him. So no matter what kind of sign or miracle he performed, uh, they were going to use it against him. He knew this. But I think the more applicable word here is the word adulteress, okay? Which is kind of weird, right? When we think of the word adultery, we usually think of it being like uh, sexual in nature, right? Uh, this word is synonymous with lustful. Um, now, I don't think any of us would ascribe our relationship with Jesus as being adulterous or lustful, right? Uh, but if you look at the meaning behind this word, uh, the main difference between lust and love is that, like, love is reciprocal while lust is one way. What can you do for me? That is lust, right? How can you satisfy me? I love um, psychologist uh, John Townsend's uh, definition of love. He says, love is seeking and doing the best for the other. Right? That's what love is. That's where the intention of love comes from. But lust is, what can you do for me? How can you satisfy me? And so when men, for example, objectify women, that's, that's men's intention. How can this woman satisfy me? And if you think about lust in that way, a lot of times we do lust after God. We do objectify God. We are kind of adulterous in the way that we treat God. A lot of times we objectify him and we think, what can God do for me? And so this is exactly what Jesus saw in these religious leaders. 
they didn't want to participate in what Jesus was doing whatsoever. They couldn't care less about God's kingdom or like what Jesus was trying to do, okay? Uh, they just wanted Jesus to do his little dance, to do a little show so that they could use it against him or they could use it to their own advantage and they wanted to move on. So this is why Matthew intentionally use, uses the word sign from heaven rather than healing. You see, God wants disciples. He, wanted, he knew that these religious leaders were, had no intention of following him. They just wanted a show. God wants disciples, not spectators. God wants people who will actually play in the game. Not people who want to join the team to just sit on the bench. I often forget that we are currently in the NBA playoff season right now. Um, and I really don't care. <laughs> this is for a couple of reasons. One, because like I am so obsessed with Game of Thrones right now that like I really don't care about anything else entertainment related. Okay, now like I'm not condoning Game of Thrones, okay? As a pastor, it's like very graphic, very violent, right? There's a lot of bad stuff in there, so don't watch it. But, it, but it's the best show on TV that has ever existed, all right? So I really don't care about anything else like entertainment related. So like Avengers, what? I don't even, what? Like, I'm just gonna watch it when Game of Thrones ends, okay? I'll wait for it to come out on Netflix or something. I don't care. Um, uh, and the other thing is, the other reason why, like, I'm not really interested in the NBA playoffs is because, like, I don't know, I just kind of, I just think NBA is kind of boring now, ever since Golden State made their super team a few years ago. Now, uh, Friday, Portland's game was amazing. Four overtimes. Did you guys know that? Four overtimes, it's crazy. But you know that even if they advance, they're just gonna lose to Golden State, all right? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But like, you know, I was like, oh, that's amazing. But like, you know, it's like all gonna be for nothing. <laughs> uh, so like, um, but just think about like, but I was watching um, highlights from Friday's game, uh, uh, Portland against Denver. It, it, was, it was amazing. It was like this amazing game. It was like one of the greatest NBA playoff games in history, I think. And uh, it, I was thinking like, it must be so frustrating for those who are sitting on the bench, right? During this like really intense, like competitive, important game, right? Uh, like they're just, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, like I would feel like just so, okay, I, maybe I shouldn't use this word, but I can't think of any other word, but like constipated. <laughs> like, I would feel like so frustrated and like, I wanna get in there. Like, come on, come on, put me in coach, right? But like, I would, it would be so hard just watching the game. Now think about it in terms of like uh, our, our faith context. Wouldn't it be weird if someone said like, I wanna join the team and all I wanna do is just sit on the bench. Don't put me in, I don't wanna play, don't, I, 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 don't want, I, just, I don't wanna get hurt, okay? I don't wanna take any risks, so I just wanna, I just, I just really wanna get on the team so that I could sit on the bench. I'm gonna warm that bench up. I'm gonna just make it nice and warm for uh, Lillard to come and sit when he's like, and then like, I'm just gonna get back on and I'm just gonna, mm, I'm just gonna warm it up. <laughs> That's weird, right? 
But a lot of times, this is how we treat our faith. We want the safest way possible. We don't want to get involved. We don't want to play the game. We, I'm just going mm, to sit there. I'm just going to warm it up. I'm just going like, to just sit here and watch. But this is not the kind of people that Jesus is interested in. This is not the kind of disciples that he wants. Now, I'm not questioning your salvation, okay, Ernest? This is not about that, okay? Uh, uh, this is all about, like, what kind of disciples does Jesus want? What kind of disciples does he want us to be? What's ironic about this situation is that, like, these religious leaders were asking Jesus for a sign. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of us have admitted that we ask God for signs all the time. Right? We ask God for signs. But I think God is saying to us, why don't you show me a sign? Why don't you show me that you're for real? Why don't you show me something? And it's not a matter of proving our faith. It's a matter of living out our faith. Some of you might know that my wife, uh, Becky, um, is a gifted creative director and graphic designer. And uh, she has the benefit of working from home uh, four out of five weekdays of the week. And so oftentimes, um, when she's working, I do this creepy thing where I just kind of like hover over her like this thing. I just like, because I just find her work like so fascinating and, and what she does, it's like pretty amazing. So I just, so I'll, I'll pretend to like ask her a question. I'll be like, oh, Becky, uh, someone called. And she's like, oh, okay, whatever. And so uh, I'll just kind of stay there, just kind of looking at her work. And she hates it. And she always, can I help you? Right? <laughs> she hates it, right? Um, but one of the things uh, that she does a lot is she works on this app called Photoshop. You guys know what Photoshop is, right? And uh, when she has to, uh, when she's working with an image, a picture, uh, a, a portrait of a person, uh, she's on Photoshop and you know she removes certain like blemishes or imperfections, or she enhances the photo somehow, right? She like brightens it up, like adds shading where there needs to be shading, or she like cuts out parts and edits it. And it looks like amazing after she's done with it. Now, uh, I'm sure most of you know that almost everything we see online, published, or in advertising, all of that stuff is Photoshop. Uh, now we have a word, a verb for it, right? It's Photoshopped, or we got to Photoshop it, right? And this isn't like, um, it's, not, you're, you're not, it's not fake, okay? Maybe using the word fake is a little too extreme, right? And there's this, new word for it called hyper-reality, okay? It's hyper-reality. You're taking what's real and you're enhancing it, you're editing it to make it better, to make it look better, right? To make it look cleaner. We live in a society that is hyper-reality, right? Now, the most obvious um, example is social media, right? Social media definitely encourages and incubates this kind of behavior. Uh, but we also do this in our face-to-face -face conversations as well, right? We edit things out. We might make ourselves look better or more, more appealing than we actually are. 
And when you meet someone who is really raw and open and maybe either unable or uh, indifferent to editing their language, it's kind, of, it's kind of weird, right? It's kind of jarring. But that's the kind of society that we live in. It's a hyper-real society. And in many ways, the church has become kind of hyper-reality. We want the cross. Oh, the cross isn't here. I was going to point to the cross as an example. But we want the cross, but we want it to be comfortable. When you think about that cross that Jesus carried up the hill to Calvary, it was big, it was heavy, it was ugly, it was rugged, covered in splinters. But the cross that we want is small, it's light, it's portable, and it comes with a five-year warranty. Christian author, pastor, and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it best when he said, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your entire life. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your entire life. Let's pray.